If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 24 this morning. It has been said, life is choices. Choices have consequences. Make right choices. Last week, we read of the fall of mankind in verses 1 through 13. This is when Adam and Eve were in the garden. Eve was tempted by the serpent and chose to forsake God's word and eat of the fruit. Following that, Adam, with eyes wide open, intentionally and purposely followed Eve into disobedience. And into the world then came sin. After God confronted Adam and Eve, we read verses 14 through 24, which describe the sentence of judgment, the consequence of sinful choices that God gives to both man and woman and the serpent. As God executed judgment, though, we can recognize something about his sovereignty, about his power as creator God over all things. As we look at the judgments, to just see who is giving the judgment, what is he saying, how is he showing or displaying his sovereignty and his power. All things are under his power. Then, in the garden, and today. That is, that is a biblical truth from the opening book of the Bible. All things are under God's power. They were then, and they are today. The judgment, though, that God gives was a result of sin. One commentator summarizes it this way, that perfection was replaced with pain. Genesis chapter 3 helps us understand the world. It helps us understand why the world is the way the world is. Why the world isn't the way that we might wish it was. Why is there sin? Why is there death? Why is there disease? Why are there problems? Why is there conflict? Why is there distrust? Why is there shame? Why is there fear? Genesis 3 tells the story. Before God addressed Adam and Eve, he began with a curse against the serpents. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Follow along. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, God's judgment here of the serpent begins without question. Now, we can remember back into the the concluding verses of the previous passage, verses uh, 12, really 8 through 12, that, that God confronts Adam and Eve and he asks them a series of questions. There's no question for the serpent here. God is not asking any questions of the serpent. He gets right to the issue at hand. And we can see there are two objects here in view 
in his judgment, of his judgment. The first is the material serpent. He has a curse against the material serpent, the animal, the serpents. And then secondly, that the spiritual serpent, that being Satan in verse 15. But, but, but first, verse 14, the material serpent, the actual animal, the serpent itself was cursed above all livestock and all beasts. It said that other than chapter 4, verse 11, this is the only time where God verbalizes a curse. The others are spoken by a prophet. Here, God verbalizes a curse against the serpent. The serpent was cursed, as was the ground in verse 17. But we'll see as God gets to the, the man and the woman, there's, there's no curse. God doesn't actually call it a curse. It's judgment. That's not a curse. The, the, the earth is cursed. The serpent is cursed. But the, the language of cursing does not come to the man or to the woman. God's curse against the, the serpent we see here is that he would crawl on its belly and eat dust all the days of its life. That eating dust here symbolizes throughout the Bible humiliation in places like Psalm 72 verse 9. In Leviticus chapter 11 verse 42, whatever crawls on its belly is called detestable. This is, this is a, a curse. Now there are some who, who want to argue that just because he says that he, the serpent is crawling on its belly doesn't mean that it previously was not crawling on its belly. The crawling might not be a new reality, but rather a new meaning. For instance, or for example, after the flood, there's a rainbow in the sky. And God says that rainbow now symbolizes the promise that God will never flood the earth again. It's not to say that there was never a rainbow before this, only that this is now a new symbol, a new meaning. Likewise, now this serpent crawling on the ground symbolizes the curse, symbolizes God's judgments. Nevertheless, as Kent Hughes writes, the snake exalted itself above man, therefore it would go on its belly all the rest of its life. There was no deliverance for the serpent. There's no way out for the serpent. This is the, the reality of the serpent. Choices have consequences. Well, from here, God then addresses Satan, the spiritual serpent, in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, part of the consequence of sin was that there would be enmity or hostility between Satan and the woman, between Satan and Eve, between his offspring and her offspring. Uh, we could say it this way, between Satan's family and between God's family, between the wicked and those who are God's. Now, Satan is already a fallen angel at this point, but God here declares a promise of his destruction. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But he also even tells us the means of the destruction. Not just that the serpent will be destroyed, but how the serpent will be destroyed. It would be from the offspring or from the seed of the woman. That's how his, his demise was going to come about. That's how his destruction would ultimately come about was through the offspring of the woman. The offspring would ultimately defeat 
the serpent, ultimately defeat Satan by, by bruising or, or crushing uh, the head of the serpent with a, a fatal, uh, a mortal wound. The, the book of Genesis goes on to trace that seed. The, the seed of the woman is traced through the book of Genesis. It's the lineage of the seed, and that's why there are genealogies. The genealogies that you and I want to jump past, those, <laughs> that's why they're there. They're, they're tracing for you from, from Eve, from Adam and Eve, how is this promise of chapter 3, verse 15 going to come about? How is the seed going to make it? Who's going to be the ultimate offspring who would defeat Satan? This would have been a message of, of hope, of great hope for the Israelites as they heard these words in, in verse 15 that, that are called the, the Proto-Evangelium. The, the Proto-Evangelion is the first gospel. That's what verse 15 is. Uh, again, Ken Hughes says this is a gospel prophecy of the cross. That's what's happening in verse 15. That's, that's the picture, the foreshadowing of what is yet to come. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we can see that Jesus was a descendant of the woman. In, in Luke chapter 3, there's another genealogy. And the genealogy goes from Joseph all the way back to Adam. So what is, what is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying that Jesus is the offspring. Jesus is the offspring who would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent who would bruise the heel of Jesus. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. There's a scarlet thread that runs throughout the Bible from Eve to Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And who was this one who came? He was the offspring. It was the offspring of Eve, who was the offspring of Adam, who was the offspring of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it says very plainly that the offspring of Abraham is Christ. And so if the offspring of Abraham is Christ, that's taking us all the way back to Eve as well. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Come to crush Satan. It was through his death on the cross that Satan would be defeated. When God says in verse 15, you shall bruise his head, he's talking about the victory of Jesus on the cross. You shall bruise his heel. It's talking about that Jesus would have to die a physical death and yet triumph over death in his resurrection. This is a prophecy of the cross. Choices have consequences, and Satan's choice has a consequence that one day he would be destroyed. And though, even in the midst of this curse, th though this seems awfully bleak, there's actually hope here. There's hope. There's hope that there would come an offspring to defeat Satan. It's not all, not all is lost. The, the offspring would come through the woman, which tells us that the woman would not die immediately and that the woman would have children. This is an important part of the text, which leads us to verse 16. Verses 16 through 19 then tells us of God's judgment on the woman and then on the man. For the woman first, look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God's judgment on the woman involved pain. 
We're going to see it involves pain for the man as well. But this pain comes physically, it comes psychologically, it comes socially. First, the physical pain in childbirth. And mothers in the room know exactly what that means. And it's true. That's exactly what it means. What, what you think it means is what it means. There's pain in childbearing. But not only that, there's, there's psychological pain that the woman would deal with. We see that in the end of verse 16, when it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's going to be pain in marriage. There's going to be conflict in that relationship. As, as the woman desires to control or conquer her husband. That's what God's talking about here. Now turn to chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, we see this same language used when God is talking to Cain. In chapter 4, verse 7, God says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. As the woman would be contrary to the man, sin was contrary to Cain. As sin wanted to dominate Cain, part of the fall is that the woman wants to dominate the man, wants to uh, usurp the man. What does he say? But you must rule over it. You must, you must do your job, Cain. You, you must not allow sin to master you. Eve's desire would be contrary to her husband. She would attempt to usurp him as she already had. Now, we can blame the passivity of, of Adam here, right? We can blame Adam for Eve's actions. If Adam would have stood up, maybe Eve wouldn't have done what she did. And he deserves blame, and we'll get, we'll get to him in a moment. But this doesn't make Eve blameless. Just because Adam has blame doesn't mean Eve is blameless. The, the, the roles in marriage are, are meant uh, for the good of the marriage, not just for the good of, of the spouse here. The temptation uh, of the woman is to, uh, to rule over the man. And this is a, a temptation that exists today. And if you're married, you know that it exists today. It, 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 is, it is real, it is present, and it is part of the fall. It's part of the consequence of sin. See, apart from Christ, we are without hope. Uh, this, is, this is the reality of, of the fall. In marriages without Christ, this is the reality of the temptations that are faced. But thanks be to God that he redeems and he restores. And this isn't how marriage have to work. God has designed a better way. He's actually given roles to men and women that are complementary, that, that are different but, but equal, both with honor and with dignity. We could go to places like Ephesians chapter 5 and see just that, about the role of the, the husband and the role of the wife. But the third aspect of pain is, is found at the end there, that he will rule over her, or that he will rule over you. This third aspect of pain is a social aspect, where the woman was now in submission to her husband. Now that's a fun topic to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> Submit is a five-letter word, but it's more like a four-letter word in our culture, right? <laughs> right? We don't like to use the word 
even some of you right now, you don't even like that I'm talking about submission, right? You're you're uncomfortable with the word. It feels archaic. It feels uh, like like it is inappropriate uh, in our day and age. And and let's just say, and let's just all be honest here, that there have been abuses of this. Uh, There have been abuses of this concept in far too many quote-unquote Christian marriages where husbands have claimed the you must submit to me card. Uh, which the Bible never calls for a husband to tell his wife to submit to him, by the way. That's not what the Bible calls for a husband to do to his wife. So we must admit that that has happened. Uh, Men who use the scriptures as a lever for power will give an account to God for their misuse and abuse of the scripture. And the church ought not to proliferate and it ought not to permit or encourage any view of submission that devalues or dishonors women. That is not what the Bible teaches. So any view that you have or heard of submission meaning man gets to do what he wants and the woman has to stay quiet and stay at home is, a, is, a, 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 um, is wrong. It's a misuse and an abuse of the scriptures. Now some would be glad to throw out the principle of submission for its possible abuses. And in place of it, enter into an egalitarian view that blurs all gender roles or roles to begin with. But the malpractice of some Christians does not indicate a problem with what God has said, only a problem with the malpractice of those Christians. We don't blame God for the malpractice of Christians. We don't blame God or God's word for people misusing the word of God for their own uses. In the New Testament, Paul is very clear about roles. He's very clear about headship in marriage, that the husband is the head of the wife and that the wife is to submit to the husband. That's absolutely clear. Again, I recognize that in our culture, those things sound crazy. We, we sound like we're, we're out of touch, but that is what Ephesians chapter five teaches. But any man who would read that and think that that somehow is a power grab has not actually read the verses. It's not a power grab. I said this at a wedding one time and people laughed, but it's not actually funny. So you can laugh if you want, but it's not actually funny. When I said that that this is actually not a power grab to say that the man is the head of the woman, it's actually a death sentence. And what I mean by that is what does it mean to be the head? It means to sacrifice. It means to lay down your life. Because what does Paul Paul use as an example for for the husband? But Christ, Christ laid down his life for the church. So a man, a husband ought to lay down his life for for his wife. So to be the head doesn't mean I get to call the shots and I get to do whatever I want. No, it actually means you sacrifice. You actually give up your life. The one who submits is not the only one who's giving up anything. The husband is to submit. Submit first to the father. But additionally, Paul talks about mutual submission. We don't talk about that very much, do we? And we are to submit to one another. The husband, you're to submit to your wife in the sense of of caring for her needs too, of looking out for her interests too. Now, neither of these emphases should be overlooked, both the reality of male headship or mutual submission. To do so would be to misrepresent God's word on this subject. One writer says, the woman wanted to be independent, but now she is totally dependent on her husband and not God. 
She sought for joy and happiness in the forbidden fruit, but now she has pain in the normal aspect of her life. Life has choices. Choices have consequences. Even here, though, we see God's grace to the woman. Right? Motherhood and marriage are good things, but they can never fulfill. They can never actually fill you the way you need to be filled. And anybody who looks to marriage and children to give them the, the, the satisfaction that they think they need will, will find that it's empty. It cannot fill you the way you need to be filled. There's only one place that you can come to and find satisfaction and find rest for your soul, and that is Christ. And in the judgments, God is pointing the woman to the fact that those things will never fulfill. I'm the only one who can. Last but not least, God judges Adam. Look at verses, verse, 30, verse 19, or 17. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command, commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Because Adam sinned, because Adam listened to the woman, that, is, that means that he obeyed the woman. Now, some of you husbands, like, it doesn't mean that he didn't listen to her. He obeyed her, right? So if some of you say, well, I don't, I'm not going to listen to her. No, he means you, you obeyed, obeyed her in this way. He went along with her sin. Because of that, because he went along with it, because he ate of the fruit, God spoke judgment. He spoke judgment on his work and on his ability to provide. Like Eve's tendency to control and conquer, many men are prone to passivity in marriage. Going along to get along. Whereas men need to know that there are battles to fight, battles not to fight, that's absolutely true. Never fighting, never standing up. By fighting, I mean standing up, not physically, in case that's ever clipped out of context. Never standing up, never speaking up, never leading in any way. That is a recipe for a disaster in a marriage. Going along to get along might work in the moment. It does not work in the long term. Now, none of this is easy. None of it is easy. And this is not some, some uh, attempt at just saying, well, th- th- that'll make your marriage all nice. That's not what this means. But if a wife knows that her husband is a godly, good-willed man who loves her, serves her, provides for her, protects her, and is for her, that submitting to his leadership should not be a chore for her. Likewise, if a husband knows that his wife is godly and a good-willed woman, which means she has best interest at heart, who respects him, honors him, loves him, cares for him, then leading her should not be a fearful or contentious matter for him. So it goes both ways is the point. No one has the singular responsibility here. The husband has a responsibility to lead, yes and amen. The wife has a responsibility to submit, yes and amen. But we live in a fallen world, don't we? And this isn't always very easy. We must press back against the ways of the world in order to live according to God's word. Well, as the ground was cursed in verse 17, painful work and toil followed for all of life. That was the consequence From the beauty of the perfect garden, now look at verse 18. Thorns and thistles you shall bring forth, it shall bring forth for you. That's the ground. And you shall eat the plants of the field. What's he saying? 
all creation, all creation has felt the fall. The ground is cursed. It, it has all, and so when we get to Romans chapter 8, and we hear Paul say, the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. It means not only are you and I waiting for, for the return of Christ to restore all things, but creation is waiting for the return of Christ to restore all things. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. You're broken. I'm broken. The earth is broken. But it won't be for long. Well, God's judgment described life as, as painful, difficult, and then ending in death. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will or shall return. At the fall, death entered the world, and it did so because of sin. Romans chapter 5 tells us just that. By, by one man, sin entered the world, and so too through death, and death through sin. We're all sinners. And our sin has consequence. And the consequence of our sin is death. And it's not only physical death. Far more significantly is spiritual death. That we die, we die between our relationship with God. That we are, our relationship with God is broken. We are no longer at fellowship with him. But the grace here in the message to Adam is that apart from God, no work of your hands, no, no toil that you do, no capacity that you have could ever fully or completely satisfy you. Some of us run to our work as our identity. And we want to be filled up with our, what we do. And God is saying here in the judgment that, that actually you won't find success there. It can't fully satisfy you. Thorns and thistles. There's, it's never going to be right. It's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something wrong. King Solomon understood this. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He came to understand that no matter how hard you try to do it on your own, you can't be satisfied with what this world has brought you because you're not made for this world and these things were never meant to satisfy you. The brokenness of this world is to point us to where true and lasting satisfaction come from. And where is that but God? And God alone. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Where are pleasures where are pleasures? At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. The Bible, common knowledge, the Bible knowledge commentary says this. These punishments represent retaliatory justice. Adam and Eve sinned by eating. They would suffer in order to eat. She manipulated her husband. She would be mastered by her husband. The serpent destroyed the human race. He will be destroyed. Choices have consequences. At this point, the sentencing is concluded in verse 19. And as we get into verses 20 through 24, we see Adam's response and God's grace to sinners. You don't think about grace in the Old Testament, do you? You think it's all law. That's how we compartmentalize the Bible, law and grace. But there's grace in Genesis, and you'll see it in a moment. But first, what does Adam do? Look at verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now this is kind of a, a sentence that many of us would just read past like we read past when Adam named the animals. Like, okay, so that's where Eve gets her, her name. But there's more here. There's more to be understood. What is the name? The name is Eve. 
the, the, the name Eve means living or it means life. So what does he name her? Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The name comes after God's judgments and God's promises. God's, pro- God's judgment was death, wasn't it? That they would die. But God also had a promise. Look who named Eve. Who named Eve? God didn't name Eve. The man named Eve. Adam named Eve. This is an indication that Adam had heard God's word. He had heard the promise and he believed God. Adam believed God. Adam believed that his wife would bear a child, would bear an offspring, and that from her descendants would come one day an offspring who would defeat the serpent, who would crush the head of Satan. Now, did Adam understand all of that? Did he understand who Jesus was? Of course he didn't, but he understood the promise and he believed God. He believed God that from Eve would come the offspring who would be victorious over Satan. One commentator calls, says that this faith implies repentance. That, 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 how, how do we repent? We recognize God's word. We recognize God's promise. Warren Wearsby writes, faith simply takes God at his word and acts upon it. When, when, when Abraham was justified, how is he justified? By faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And the book of Romans affirmed that very thing. So here, Adam believes God. He believes him. So he names his wife this name because he understood that she would be the one through whom the offspring would come, through whom the gospel would come, through whom salvation would come, through whom the the whole universe would one day be restored. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful faith. And Adam exhibits it here. He believed God and God responded to him. Look at verse 21. How did God respond? And God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now you'll remember that Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they made themselves clothes too. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame, to cover their fear. They attempted by their own means, by their own hands, to cover their sin. But here's a great truth in the scriptures. Nothing we do can ever cover our shame. Nothing we do, nothing with our guilty hands can ever atone for our sin. Salvation is never by our works, ever. And here, God provides something for Adam and Eve. Something that Adam and Eve could not do, God did for them. He covered them. How? The, the, the garments were made of what? Of skin. What kind of skin? Animal skin. God provided for Adam and Eve through sacrifice. That's what we see here. We see the first animal sacrifice in the garden to cover Adam and Eve. Innocent animals had to die in order to cover Adam and Eve. This is a foreshadowing of God's ultimate provision of sin of atonement later in the tabernacle and in the temple. Access to God came through how? The shedding of blood. How how were sins atoned? Through the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. This is an amazing and a beautiful picture. And still, 
sin carries unavoidable consequences. Look at verse 22. And, and the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of the Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. In their sinful condition, listen, Adam and Eve could not stay in the garden. For if they were to stay in the garden and eat of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a fallen condition. They would live forever as sinners. And God in grace says, no, we're not going to do that. And so he drives them out of the garden. This was a penalty and it was grace. The expulsion from the garden was in in fact for their own good. And to protect the tree of life then, we see that he places a cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden. Now, as the Bible unfolds, at this point in the scriptures, we don't really understand any of that. First of all, what is even a cherubim at this point in the, in the biblical record? And what's the deal with the flaming sword? Well, the flaming sword in fire is a representation in the Bible of God's presence. But what about the, the cherubim? Cherubim, we think of angelic beings As we go on in the Bible, we read about the tabernacle and we read about the temple. And this is where God would meet with his people. And inside the tabernacle and inside the temple, there was what is called the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat that sacrifices would be made. And above the mercy seat, do you know what stood above the mercy seat? Cherubim stood above the mercy seat. But what's even more than that is there was a veil that covered the holy of holies in the tabernacle, in the temple, and embroidered on that curtain, on that veil, you guessed it, are cherubim. What is happening here? What is, what is being said? It is reminding the people of God of the separation between God and man, that there is no way into God's presence that, that is being protected by heavenly beings. But as we keep reading our Bible, we get to the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on the cross. He is dying. He gives up his spirits. And what happens in the temple? The veil is torn in two. The veil that had the cherubim embroidered on it was torn in two. The access to God, the access back to God, the access that was forbidden from the garden is now available through Christ. There's a way back. There's a way back to God. There's a way back to paradise. It is through Jesus. It is through our high priest. The exile of Adam and Eve from the garden, from God's presence, points us to the need for a redeemer, for the need for a rescuer. Adam and Eve couldn't get back to God on their own. Friend, you can't get back to God on your own either. Adam and Eve had sinned, and the consequence of their sin was separation from God. That's the same consequence for you and me. For the wages of sin is death. And we are all sinners. We need a rescuer. We need someone to atone for our sin, to bring us back to God, to bring us back to union, to bring us back to peace, to bring us back to paradise, to bring us back to the tree of life. And it is through Christ on the cross that we can have eternal life. Eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. It's through Christ that one day his people will live in a place in paradise. Paradise restored. 
where righteousness dwells, where the, the river runs beside the tree of life. Christ is our priest. Christ is our, our, our sacrifice. And Christ is the only way to the Father. Through Adam came death. Through Christ has come life. Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save sinners. Do you know you're a sinner this morning? And do you know what he did in order to save you? He came to die for you. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to take your death so that you could have life. You wouldn't make that deal. I wouldn't make that deal. Scarcely for a righteous man would one dare to die. Yet for a, a, an unrighteous man, yet for an enemy of God, who would? Who would? But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly that we might have life. Genesis chapter 3 is pointing us to a rescuer, the rescuer who would come, the rescuer who, who did come, who was lifted up on the cross in order that all who come to him in faith would be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. How? Through him. Through him. Salvation is available through him. So this morning, look to the cross. Look to the rescuer. Look to the offspring. Look to the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpents. It is true that choices have consequences, but Christ has come to rescue us from the greatest consequence, the judgment of our sin and the separation of our soul from God forever. And if you would but come today, repenting and believing in what Christ has done for you, you can have hope today. There's a lot of bad in the world there's a lot of consequence of sin in the world. You feel it, I feel it. There's hope today. There's hope today of a greater future than you could possibly know, but only in Christ. Come to him today. Come to the cross. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Redeemer that you sent into the world in order that we might be saved. And I pray today for those who have come to you in repentance and faith who have recognized their sin and trusted you by faith. God, I pray that they would see the beauty again of Jesus, of Jesus' work for them, and it would be motivation once again to live not for themselves, but for him who died for them. For those who have yet to come to Christ, I pray even this morning as they hear of the good news, the prophecy of the cross, the gospel prophecy of the cross, all the way from the book of Genesis, telling us of what would happen. And in fact, it has happened. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has been buried and rose again, victorious over sin. And for all who would believe, they can have life both now and forever. We pray that they would repent and believe today, that your spirit would convict them, and they would respond, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God, you